experts would suggest that by the end of 2022, the self-help empire will be worth between 13.2 and 13.9 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. 13.2 and 13.9 billion dollars. Millennials, 94% of them in this survey, done these are American numbers, would suggest that they now purchase self-help paraphernalia, books, audio, coaching. In the audio, self-help audio, it attributes to 769 million of the 13.2 billion. Of the books, 800 million. Of coaching now, life coaching, 1.4 billion. Motivational speakers, $1 billion, all adding into this insurmountable amount of self-helpness. In Canada, between 2016 and 2017, there was a 22% increase in the consumption of self-help materials. And sometimes we look for answers in the wrong places. Sometimes we look for it in self-help. Sometimes we look for it in experience. You can see at times, all you have to do is Google experiences of going to heaven, and YouTube is filled with a number of people who will tell you that they've gone to heaven and come back, that they've had some type of experience, and that in that experience, they have seen God or they have experienced something in the angelic realm, whatever it would be. I have people that talk about in their con experience how they continually or habitually, ritually converse with relatives who have died and what that looks like. Last week I was here in the building. I was over kind of in that portion uh, just before my, uh, or in the afternoon before coming home for my uh, Sunday night study uh, that's here later on in the evening. And as I was kind of walking through, there was a gentleman that uh, has been here off and on and, and, uh, and, and, and been in our neighborhood. And he was at our corner. He saw me, he came over, and he's telling me about how great his life has been going. His life has done this over time. Married, got kids, but he said, man, we just recently bought a million-dollar house. Um, my business has been doing really well, so excited about what it's been doing. And he was just telling me how well things have been going. He told me how much money he has in the bank, and then he did this. Knock on wood. Because he didn't want to somehow ruin all the good he was telling me with this superstition that he had. And so sometimes we look for answers in all the wrong places. Sometimes in self-help, sometimes in experience, sometimes we rely on some type of silly superstition. Sometimes it's some type of legalistic living. Paul has just gone through, as we're in the book of Colossians in the second chapter, talking about the supremacy of Christ and how the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ. And now he moves on to talk about, as he's clearly stated, that Christ is above all authority and power, and he's made public spectacle of any other power authority by triumphing over them by way of the cross. He now goes on to talk about how that practically looks. What does it mean that Christ is that triumphant? If you have your Bibles, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 16. The verse will be on the screen. Word of the Lord says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And do not let anyone who delights in false humility, humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, 
Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their rash or harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul here offers kind of three main themes as he talks about what it means that Christ is superior to all power and authority and his accomplished work is enough. He starts off, and we don't know who the Colossian heresy is. We know there's a Colossian heresy. It's a mixture of pagan cultic um, experience and, and of Jewish thought. And so here you have some of the Jewish thought come in. Paul says, therefore, because of who you are in Christ, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He's saying, don't put your hope in the wrong places. It's easy to put your hope in something where there is no hope. He says, so it's not about what you eat or what you drink. This is talked about in matters of disputable matters in Corinthians and in Romans, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians, basically 8 right through to chapter 11, uh, the first portion of 11. And here in this section on where Paul's talking about Old Testament uh, rituals and practices and what they look like today, he says, don't judge. And don't let others judge you. Don't let others judge you. When the Bible talks about judgment, the Bible clearly forbids believers judging believers. A believer is never to judge another believer one-to-one. Judgment is only ever to occur in an area of church discipline. It's only in that area that God ever grants us, under the authority of a leadership of a church, the opportunity or the the actual necessity to judge. But... One-to-one, we're never to do it. And as some people are exercising their freedom in Christ, other people are being judged by it. And here he says, don't be judged by what you eat or drink. He talks about this in the other two passages on disputable matters, Paul does. And in those passages, he talks about how you are not to be concerned about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, because you know an idol is nothing, nothing at all in the world. Specifically in Corinth, the Greek goddess Aphrodite was there at her temple. There were 600 uh, uh, prostitutes who were there for you to come together to worship her because she was the goddess of love. And as you gathered there to worship her and engage in all of that indulgence, you would bring a sacrifice. And typically their priest um, for the Greek goddess Aphrodite would take a third of the sacrifice and offer it. A third of the sacrifice you would keep. A third of the sacrifice they would sell to the market. They would keep. But a priest couldn't eat, you know, 70 or 80 sacrifices a day, so he'd sell them to the market. And then you would go to the market, you'd get to the market, and you wouldn't know whether or not that piece of meat was a portion of a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol or not. Or you'd get to a friend's house, and you wouldn't know that. And Paul says, we know there's nothing at all in the world like idols. Idols don't exist. Other gods don't exist. They're simply not real. And he goes on to talk about some principles around disputable matters. One of them being not to judge, others being uh, let your conscience guide you and uh, not to cause someone to stumble. And you can read that, and I've preached many sermons on that before in understanding hermeneutics and how we, how we handle uh, disputable matters in Scripture. But here he's, his point is this, that your hope is not to be in these rituals because the reality of them, they're all shadows of who Christ is. 
he mentions religious festivals. The religious festivals will be festivals where always, as part of the festival and practice, a lamb, a sacrifice would occur. And in that sacrifice, that sacrifice and the shedding of blood, of blood would be to appease the wrath of God for that time. But they were always foreshadowing those sacrifices. The fact that Christ would come, Christ would be the ultimate lamb, and Christ's sacrifice would appease the wrath of the Father fully so that we could be in relationship with him. New moon celebration, which are religious uh, uh, celebrations mentioned both in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, kind of second uh, temple testament um, um, writings that are there between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you can see in those writings how Jewish people began to celebrate these new moon celebrations. Sabbath day, right? Sabbath day was an incredibly critical thing. Now, we often misunderstand this here when it comes uh, to the Sabbath day. There are Jews in, in Colossae, but there are more Gentiles, certainly. And this is a predominantly Gentile church where some Jews have come to faith in Christ. And there may be, like there are some Judaizers in Galatians and other books that Paul talks about, book of Philippians, there may be some conversation going on something like this. Well, they know that God gave them the Sabbath. They were given the Sabbath, the seventh day, to rest, to keep it holy. And in that, they weren't to break the Sabbath. But of course, God's people were now celebrating who he is and what he'd accomplished on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. It had shifted over to the Lord's Day. But people who were Sabbatarian were arguing, well, this can't be. Because the Jewish people would have typically had the Saturday off, but not the Sunday. The Roman culture allowed for that and allowed for the Jews to have the Sunday off from Friday when the sun would set until Saturday, or yeah, when the sun, when the sun would set again, that 24-hour period. And what would occur is, now believers are meeting on Sunday, and they'd have to meet either before work or after work, because they were working during the day. And some are saying, well, you can't do this. In fact, you're worshiping on the wrong day. Or you need to be taking this day as your Sabbath. And there'd be all these kinds of debates. And Paul says, stop it. These things are not where your hope is to be found. They were only a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. We've all had some type of religious experiences, right? Things that have been good for our heart and for our soul that sometimes we cling to, that sometimes we continue to want to replicate, but the reality is found in Christ. Years ago, I was at a prayer meeting when I was a Bible college student at Tyndale. We used to meet once a week for a prayer meeting. It was typically like a 75-minute prayer meeting. And one night, the Lord just really uniquely met with us. I'll never forget it. And we sang, and we prayed, and we talked, and we read Scripture well into the night, right? It just, it, we didn't want it to end. Nobody wanted to, nobody wanted to end. And it was before the day of phones and emails and all that stuff. So the next day, you know, partway through the day, one of the guys at the prayer meeting said, we should all meet tonight. We should all gather tonight to pray. And I'm like, well, well like, why? Well, you know, so God can do what he did last night again tonight. So we all gathered again to pray that night. Same guys, same room, began to read some of the same passages and nothing. Now, we had a good night. We prayed, but not the same experience. And then we thought, well, maybe the next week. We need to meet on the same night. I think it was actually a Tuesday night, right? Tuesday night at 9 o'clock, and God's going to meet with us like he did last week, and he didn't. That's not to discount what God did. God did an amazing thing, but our hope was never to be in that moment, that experience of God meeting with us. Our hope is to be in Christ. In Christ. At times, I've experienced God's Spirit moving 
uh, moving in and through me, and, and others of us have as well. And at times, we can want that experience more than we want Christ. We long for the experience. And Paul here says this is not about religious experience. Don't anyone judge you by what you're eating or drinking or regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. They were only shadows of things to come. That reality is found in Christ. And then he goes on. And he says, so don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. For such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, and they are puffed up with their idle notions by their spiritual mind. By their spiritual mind. It's easy to be caught up in the experience. You've experienced something. How many people have talked to you about an experience they've had with an angel? And they long to have that experience again. Now, does God ever give us experiences with angels? He does. It's clear in Scripture that he does, right? God actually uses angels as part of his spiritual warfare. But too often, we want the experience over and against Christ. And Paul's argument here in Colossians is Christ is it. Christ is the fullness of deity who's come in bodily form. And Christ is it. And he said, there's this false sense of humility that people come with, and then they even worship angels. I mean, today, I'm not encouraging you to do this. I'm just saying you could. If you were to drive to Niagara-on-the-Lake or you were to drive to St. Jacob's, and you were to walk through those small towns, you would find stores that were dedicated entirely to angels. All kinds of angel paraphernalia all through those stores. Books on angels. Angels you can buy. Angels that look like this. I've Sometimes we've gone in them. I've been in them with my kids. I remember years ago saying to Abby and Ethan, this is not what I think an angel looks like. Now, sometimes they look different in terms of the way they, they show up in Scripture, but like think of the seraphim and the cherubim in Isaiah chapter 6. I say, somebody should have an angel like that on top of their tree. Right? An angel like that. That, that would be a fascinating angel. But all of a sudden, we're more mesmerized with the experiential of the spiritual. People talk about the spiritual all the time now, and a spiritual experience or a spiritual encounter. We can even do it as we're relying on the Holy Spirit. And then long for that experience rather than God himself. That's not to negate. There's always the balance here of God's work in our lives. Again, when I was a Tyndale student, I remember... A friend of mine was coming to see me. He had graduated from the school. He'd been struggling in his faith. And one of his struggles was he would just constantly see women. And he was going to come and hang out and hang with a group of us guys for the weekend. It was a Friday night, and I was waiting for him. As I was waiting for him, the Lord just told me to pray for him. I began to pray for him. I knelt by my bed. I, I remember this vividly. I was praying for him. The Lord kept bringing his mind to name. And as I was praying for him, uh, another young woman who was part of the school who he hadn't met because she had just started the school she was in my mind. And she was a girl that was struggling as well. And so I'm praying for both of them together. And I'm wondering, Lord, why am I praying for both of them together? Unbeknownst to me, he had come to the school. He had come to the school a bit early. Uh, he was supposed to come like at 8.30 or something. He got there just before 8. Um, she came. She was at the front desk to sign him in. She was about to get off of her shift. She told him that. And the two of them went off together. And now they're parked in an alley in the backseat of a car. And as I'm there praying and praying for them, God just would not let me get up from my bedside. He just said, keep praying for them. Eventually, they, he came to my room. You know, our rooms aren't locked, and he came into my room. And he's like, wait, what are you doing? I'm like, man, I said, I've been praying for you. And he's like, why? I said, well, it's really weird. I said, I've been praying for you, and then I named her, and he just broke down and cried. And that experience is not something that we just continually long for. The experience is not what we want. Christ is what we want. But I know people who have had experiences like that, 
and they, they act as if it's the experience that has meaning. Christ has meaning. The experience is something that God may grant us, and God may grant us for his glory and the benefit to use into someone's life, but it's just an experience. And what happens, he says, oh, you look falsely humble. Oh, the Lord allowed me to have this. Oh, the Lord, right? And in this encounter with angels, he says, don't let what they're saying disqualify you. Don't get caught up in this superstitious Christianity that isn't real. Going about puffed up by all kinds of idle notions and their unspiritual mind about what they've seen or what they've said or what that looks like. Now, again, that needs to be balanced, right? In no way am I dismissing God's miraculous work. God chooses to work miraculously. He does. And in his miraculous work, when it comes to Ramadan, one of the things I pray for during Ramadan is that God would miraculously visit uh, Muslims through dreams and visions. Because you can read account after account after account of what that looks like. I was speaking out in New Brunswick years ago, out east. I don't remember if it was New Brunswick or not. I was speaking out east, maybe in Halifax, um, at an event called Jesus to the Nations. It was a large event. I was there. Um, and one of the topics at the event was around the Muslim faith. And they brought in someone uh, who couldn't be named on the roster as a speaker because of their conversion to Christianity from a radical Muslim home and what that looked like. And, and so we're there, we're behind the scenes, we're talking. So there was myself, there was another speaker who, who speaks around the world, around missions, and there was this person who converted to the Christian faith. And as we were there talking, I was talking to this person who converted to the Christian faith, solid in their faith, loved the Lord deeply. Their initial contact was God spoke to her um, in a dream. God spoke to her and said, and said in, a, with, in a vision of Christ, that I am the Lord. What I was encouraged by was that wasn't her faith. Her faith wasn't about this vision that God had granted her. Her faith was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the vision, that, that experience, was simply how God had chosen to introduce himself to her. So there's this balance here. What happens in many circles is it's the experience that becomes that with which we worship by rather than God himself. And though he grants us the miraculous, he grants us himself. I think this is most vividly shown in Scripture in this parable. It's an interesting parable. It's the only parable in Scripture where Jesus names someone by name in the parable, where he gives someone a name, which is why some people would say it's not a parable. I probably leaned in that direction for years, but I've come to the place where I think it's a parable. And so you have Jesus explaining this encounter between a beggar named Lazarus who's now in heaven in what's called Abraham's bosom, and a rich man who's in hell. And so as this rich man is in hell, and probably the reason Lazarus is given a name, the beggar is given a name, because in any time of that day, if someone was to be named, it would always be the rich man, not the poor man. And so in Christ showing how upside down his kingdom is, in Christ declaring that his principles, his rule is very different in the world, he names the beggar and not the rich man. The rich man is left unnamed. And so in this encounter, the rich man who's in hell asked Abraham if Lazarus would be able to dip his finger in some water and grant him some, some, some soothingness because he's in such torment. Abraham says, no, that's not the case. Um, we can't pass from one place to the other. I need to pause there for a moment. This is not a parable by which you understand eternity in the sense that I don't think if there's any other indication of Scripture where we will actually see each other like this. This is a dialogue that's going on there. But it does remind us of how awful hell is. 
I mean, some people say hell is not fair. You've heard this, me say this so many times. I say hell is fair. Hell is fair because people get exactly what they want. They choose not to have God. And if for all their life they say, I don't want God, I don't want God, I don't want God, God gives them exactly what they want, they don't get God. It's just not what they expect. Because God is love, there is no love in hell. There is no peace in hell. There is no joy in hell. None of that belongs in hell. In fact, I don't believe there is any fellowship in, in hell because God is complete fellowship as a triune being. I don't believe in hell anyone ever knows that anyone else is there. And so there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so finally, the, the, the rich man says, well, to Abraham, can you send Lazarus back to my brothers to warn them so that they don't end up where I am? And Abraham says, even if Lazarus goes, they will not believe. But they have the law and the prophets. That's a fascinating comment. Even if he goes, they won't believe the miraculous. They're going to dismiss it. Well, it's not really him. It just looks like him. It might be someone else. He says, what's more powerful than the miraculous is the law and the prophets. Because the law and the prophets point to salvation. Because the law and the prophets point to Christ. He says, the ultimate is me. Jesus in that, in that parable is saying, what you need to be looking for is me. They have the law and the prophets, and the law and the prophets, the word of God, points to me, the son of God. That's what they have. And so we can get all hung up, all caught up in the miraculous. What we need to be caught up in is Christ. Christ and who he is. And be thankful when God grants us an experience, and at times he does. Be thankful when God meets with us intimately, and at times he does. Be thankful when God shows up, and he does. But we're not looking for that next experiential high. We're satisfied in Christ and all that he's done. In fact, Paul says this. Those who are just looking for those kinds of experience, verse 19, they've actually lost the connection with the head. They've lost the connection from the whole body. They're no longer connected to Christ. They said the whole body is supported by God and is growing in Christ. And Paul's saying they've lost their connection. They're so consumed with the experiential that they're no longer rooted in Christ. They're no longer connected to him. So since then you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. As Why as though you did not belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There are probably two things being thought of here. The one is the superstitious. Oh, don't handle that. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. It's my friend knocking on wood to not ruin his good luck. But there's all kinds of superstitions around, isn't it? People will say things like, just beginner's luck. Or, you know, the whole thing around avoiding black cats. Not walking under an open ladder. I love to do that for people that are paranoid. It's a great thing. Right? Not opening up an umbrella in, in the house. Um, knocking on wood. 666. Now, we all do it. The other day, I was looking through Amy's figures partway through the day at one point. It must have been earlier in the morning. I'm looking, and uh, she'd, she'd actually sold $666.69 of something. At one point, I was like, whoa, move from that number. I'm like, oh, come on. That's just silly, Dwayne. Right? It's not, like, it's not like vintage charm had the mark of the beast in that moment. Right? Crossing your fingers. Like, what in the world does that do for anyone? That I crossed my fingers. But we have all kinds of superstitions. In fact, we have superstitions in the church. There are religious superstitions. Here's what a religious superstition might look like in the church. God, if you, if you heal my wife, I'll do this. I'll go on the mission field. What? 
I'll do this, God. I'll bargain with you. God, you know, I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll give more. I'll serve more. I mean, I know people that do this all this time. You know, God, you know, I've gotten myself in this financial mess. I've been honoring you with my wealth. God, if you help me get out of this financial mess, I'll honor you with my wealth. Like, what? And they act as if they can bargain with God. They act as if somehow they doing something can procure God's favor or his salvation. They act like they're Dr. Strange showing up in the dark matter universe saying, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. Dormammu, I've come to bargain. And we act like that as Christians all the time. God, you know, if you do this, I'll do this. God is not out to bargain with you. You can't get God to do more for you because you're going to read your Bible more, because you're going to pray more, because you're going to serve more, because you're going to give more. God, God, if you do this, I'll do this. Stop it. That is a false Christianity. It is, I'm going to say this and I mean it, complete and utter heresy. It is heresy to live like that. You are no, in no way can you ever earn God's favor more than you already have it now. If you're a believer today, you will never be in greater standing with God than you are right now. Now, why do I say that? Why is that true? Because when God sees you, who does he see? He sees his son, Jesus Christ. And he treats you that way. Christ took the wrath of the Father upon himself on the cross for us. And because he became our sin on the cross, he grants us his righteousness. And in granting us his righteousness, when God sees us, he sees his son. And God treats us as he would treat his son. Is that not great news? That is the good news of the gospel. God treats you as he treats his son. What does that mean? That means in appreciation and in thankfulness for what God has done for me in Christ, I want to read my Bible. I want to pray. I want to give a portion of what he's given to me back to his work. I want to serve him. I want my life to be used for the kingdom. But serving him, giving money, using my spiritual gifts, any of that, reading my Bible more, praying more, it won't procure the favor of God upon me. My doing any of that will not change my relationship with God in terms of my hope and my security. Now, that's not to say that, of course, if you're not reading your Bible more, reading it more is going to grant you a closer relationship with Christ. But, but if you're saved, it's not going to change your status in Christ. Does that make sense? You cannot procure, procure the favor of God. You cannot bargain with him. If that's how your Christianity has looked, if you've been a Christian, it's like, God, if you do this, I'll do this. God, if you do this, I'll go to the mission field. God, if you do this, I'll give more money. God, if you do this, I'll read. Stop! You're living a complete and utter lie. That is not how that's to look. That's not to say, if you haven't been reading your Bible, you shouldn't be picking up and reading it more. That's not to say, if you haven't been giving, you shouldn't be honoring God with your wealth. It is to say that it will not change your status in Christ. When you have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ and alone for salvation, he grants you what it means to be a child of God. And when God looks at you, he sees his son. That's why on judgment day, when I one day stand before the Father and I am declared innocent, I will be declared innocent because of the accomplished work of Christ, not because of how much I've read my Bible, not because of how much I've given, not because of how much I've served, not because of any of that. I will be declared innocent and have no condemnation 
simply because of what God has done for me in Christ and his accomplished work, praise his name. But we can't get hung up on the superstitious, even religiously, where we begin to somehow bargain with God. God is not to be bargained with. We come to him in repentance. Oh God, my relationship with you is out of sync because of my sin. God, heal me. And then out of a joyful response to what God has done, we read his word, we pray, we give, serve, we help. But this also, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, can also be part of uh, some type of, of legalism. Right? If you joined our church 30-some-odd years ago, you would have signed a whole bunch of things that you would not do. You would not dance, you would not drink, you would not smoke, you would not go to movies, you would not, there's a whole list of things before my time, before Pete's time, that you would sign. It was very common in many churches. But we have legalism today. It's a very different legalism. We've built a passive house building, which is one of the more environmentally friendly buildings of its kind and nature in all of North America. And if we think we're better than other churches because we built this and they don't because we did something better than them, or we pass judgment on people, then we're doing the same thing. We're making these new rules. In this pandemic, there's been all kinds of rules that have gone on, and it's been complicated. It has been. In fact, this week, I finally had to say to some of my friends, I need to stop talking to you because I, I have got to work on my sermon and message for Sunday. And so this past week, there was this blogging war that got involved, and there's a group today that are protesting at, at Queen's Park. Could they be? There's a group that's saying simply submit to the government. Should they be? Right? This is a full area of disputable matter and freedom of conscience. That is what is going on here. And there's a group of godly people on one side that have become anti-mask and have become uh, uh, um, anti-social distancing, anti-protocols, and a whole group on the other side that are saying simply submit, and they are now fighting against each other. And they've said that this week there might be a blogging war, which I've said no blogging war. Let's get together and talk. But I dealt with conversation after conversation after conversation and email and, and, and this past week saying, guys, we are, we, are, we, are, we are creating a whole new legalism here. One group is acting like if you're not on our side, you're not really following Christ. Another group is acting like if you're not on our side, you're not really following Christ. I'm like, what is wrong with you? We're all in Christ here. Like, come on, this is ridiculous. And some of my friends don't know each other. They know each other through the writings. I actually know all these people. So I've said, we need to get together because we're arguing about things that are disputable in nature. We are becoming legalistic in an area that God has granted freedom. So whether it's superstitiousness or legal practices, whether it's someone that goes to their horoscope every day, don't ever read your horoscope. What a ridiculously demonic thing to be doing. Or tarot cards. I mean, I remember growing up when I was in church with some godly people, and at one point they thought what you should do is, I don't, I don't even remember the whole thing, but, but you know, you, you stirred together these tea leaves to tell what kind of baby someone was having. But boy or girl, I'm like, are you even Christians? I remember saying this to them. Like, are you even saved? You've got to be kidding me that you're doing this. I was pretty young. Um, probably should not have said it the way I said it. But I'm like, I'm like, what kind of superstitious idiocy is this? And so we need to be so careful about what we do, what we think, how we, how we live, because we can just fall into all these superstitions. This, this afternoon, I'll be preaching at the Karen Church, right? A couple of them were here this morning. And the Karen Church is full of superstition. Full of superstition. Pastor Marshall's not getting, he knows that. 
We've been trying to preach the superstition out of them because Christ is all. Is that not good news? The fullness of deity dwells in him, and I can rely on him and him alone as my hope. My hope is not found in the experiential. My hope is not found in the religious experience. My hope is not found in superstition, and legalistic living will not save me. Christ alone does. These rules, verse 22, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teaching. All these rules will be gone. Do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. Superstition rules, it's great. They're all going to fade away, he says. They're just simply human commands and teaching. And such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any restraining sensual indulgence. They can't really help. They don't really work. Ever seen this? I have on a number of occasions. I remember when I was younger, you know, and I have now on a number of occasions been like inside of a Hare Krishna temple, met with Buddhist monks. Right? You meet with some of them, man, there's harsh treatment of the body. There is discipline on when they wake up, on when they go to bed, on what they eat, on how much they eat, on how much they read. Like there is discipline. There's harsh treatment, but there's no hope in it. No hope. I remember years ago when I was a Bible college student, I I, I got in, uh, I didn't get involved with, I, I, I got, um, I don't know, I got connected to Scientology, the Church of Scientology, because I was amazed at what it was, and I wanted to refute it as a cult, and I was young, and so I would go in. We would be downtown Toronto doing street witnessing, me and a bunch of my friends. One time I went in, I bought the book Dianetics, read it, bought another book, read it, and I would go in Friday after Friday when we were done, because they would stay up until two in the morning with some of my friends, and I would debate with them, and I would debate with them, and I'd taken their whole, I don't remember what it was now, but 400 you know, thing quiz. It was all about self-help. It was all about, Dwayne, if you buy the next thing for $300, the next thing for $400, the next thing. And I, and I would just go in and debate with them. I remember one time I was there, there was a whole bunch of kids there for a birthday party. They were all there. They were sitting there, and my heart was just broken. Like, they were all, all kind of 13 to 15, like, no, this is a cult. This is wrong. This is awful. Right? And, 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 and it was all about self-help. It was all about what you should do. It was all about, and you can see this over and over again in the way that people choose to live at times, even people in the church, and Paul says it's empty. It's empty. It looks like it's wise, but it's not. They have this self-imposed worship that isn't real. They have a false humility. But really, they're proud inside, and they treat the body with this harshness, but it doesn't really help. Why? Because the only person who can free us from our sin is Jesus Christ and him alone. Nothing else. Not a superstition, not a religious practice, nothing else, not bargaining with God. Jesus Christ and his accomplished work coming before him in repentance is the only thing that frees us from sin. Praise his name. Is that not good news? I don't need to follow rules and regulations in, in the sense of for my salvation. They don't procure the fear of God. That doesn't mean, we'll get into this in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Marshall is preaching next week, and then Pastor Derek after Christmas on this, and we'll get into that doesn't mean that's a free-for-all. God does command certain things out of us and how we live. But it does mean that I'm not freed from sin because I live that way. I'm freed from sin because of what Christ has done. Jamie, you guys can come up. And our hope is in him and him alone. It's found in Christ. He is the one. Because what? We've died with Christ. This was early in the book of Colossians, in the few verses preceding, and been raised with him. We are found in Christ, in his full accomplished work, which he has fully satisfied the wrath of the Father. 
And so I can never gain more favor with him. I can never be in greater standing with him. I am in this incredible standing of where I am at because the Son has so saved me and granted me his righteousness when he has taken the wrath of the Father upon me. So I don't need to live superstitiously. I can't bargain for a better standing with God. When God sees me, he sees his Son. He sees Christ, and he treats me as his heir. I'm an heir of God. I'm co-heir with Christ. It doesn't get better than that. That wasn't knocking on wood, by the way. Sorry, I just hit it. This doesn't get better than that. So Paul says, don't get caught up in all the things that the world wants you. Don't get caught up in these religious experiences. Don't even get caught up in some good experience that God has given you that's only to point you to Christ. Be caught up in Christ and what he's done and his accomplished work. Pray with me. We are mindful today, oh God, that we get caught up in all kinds of things. And Lord Jesus Christ will be caught up in you. You are the all-satisfying one who came and lived and died and granted us your salvation, your righteousness, by taking our sin upon yourself. Oh God, as we worship you right now, forgive us for when we move to a place of superstition, to a place of thinking that we need to somehow replicate some experience you've granted us that's supposed to point us to you. When we long for the miraculous more than we long for you, when we create rules instead of finding our freedom in you, God, forgive us. And Lord Jesus, help us to set our eyes on you, we ask in Christ's name.